2 Samuel, please, chapter 16. Actually, you know what? Some of you have electronic Bibles. We're going to be starting in 15. So uh, just know that. 2 Samuel. Title of the message today is Friends and Foes. Friends and Foes. And by way of introduction to the text, uh, just tell you about uh, two, two friends named Bob and Jim. Uh, these, these guys were, were best friends growing up, and, uh, and what happened, Pearl, Pearl Harbor came along. And, uh, and when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor the very next day, Bob and Jim decided that they were going to go down and enlist. They enlisted together, they went through boot camp together, and as it turned out, they were deployed together. And so there they found themselves uh, on the front lines of battle, and Bob had been part of, of a, an advanced team, and they made a charge, and he was caught in a hail of gunfire uh, by a machine gun nest there, and he was struck down. And Jim, seeing his good friend struck down, and he's there, just bullets whizzing everywhere. And so he starts to run out to get him, and, and his commander uh, yells at him and, and restrains him physically, says, you, you can't go out there. Well, he, he wiggles free from the guy. He defies orders. He runs out. Jim runs out to get to his buddy Bob, and uh, Jim himself is shot, uh, mortally wounded. Um, and um, he manages to drag his friend's body back into the, 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 fo- the protected area, foxhole, whatever it was, where they were at. And his commander is livid, and he's screaming at Jim, and he's like, you know, just cursing at him. And he's like, what good did that do? He says, your friend's dead, and now you're dying. And Jim, with his dying breaths, said to his commander, he said, you know, when I got to Bob, he was alive. And he looked at me and he said, I knew you'd come. And those were his last words. Jim, with that, died. And, uh, and it was more important to him than anything else that his friend knew that he was there. He was counting on them to be there. I knew you'd come. Truly best friends to, the, to their death. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the role of friends and foes, and the role that those friends play and that those foes play in our lives during time of crisis. And we're going to see three groups of people in our text today. We're going to see faithful friends, we're going to see fair weather friends, and we're going to look at foes, all in our text here. We'll start off looking, if you're taking notes, you can write down the, the first section, faithful friends, and we'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 15, uh, beginning there in verse 13, where we read, now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. We looked at this last week, and Absalom has betrayed his father, and he's committing rebellion here. He's trying to, to organize a coup and take over the, the kingdom. And so the messengers come to David. Now, by the way, I know that we've gone over this section of text, and so often what will happen is when I study through text, there's just so much, there's too much for me to give you on a Sunday morning. This kind of falls in that, cavity, in, in that category, but I, but I just feel like, you know, it's a section that needs to be dug in. That's why we're sort of, you know, back here. I know we went over it last week. But, but here, what we're seeing is that the messengers come to David. They're saying, hey, the hearts of the men in Israel are with Absalom. And so David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or we shall not escape from Absalom. 
Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, we are your servants. We're ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. We're with you, heart and soul. And then the king went out with all his household after him. But the king left ten women concubines to keep the house. We're going to see how the, this factors in next week uh, to a prophecy that was given to David um, uh, and all. And so verse 17, it says, And the king went out with all the people after him, and he stopped at the outskirts. And, uh, and then all his servants passed before him, all the Chesterites, uh, all the uh, Pelethites, all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. Now, last week we answered the question, uh, how do we do right when we've been done wrong? And David, or David clearly done wrong by Absalom, uh, committed a lot of different wrongs uh, against him. We looked at two of the wrongs that he committed last week. He stole the throne by treasonous lies, and he, and he perpetrated this sin in the name of of God and and with using sort of as a as a sticky uh, application for us by way of you know lesson the saying that two wrongs don't make a right but three lefts will uh, we use that as sort of a, a a get for the study of this text because we saw that David responded to those two wrongs by taking three lefts he he number one he left Jerusalem because he knew it was going to be very destructive if he stayed and fought, that the, that the people would suffer. So he left Jerusalem. Secondly, he left the priests and the ark in Jerusalem. Um, he, he was trusting in the God of the ark, not in the ark of God. Uh, and very important there. And the third left that David uh, took, and we looked at all of this last week, was that he left certain men in Jerusalem to thwart Absalom's Plans, But here now what we're seeing and what we're focusing on is this concept of faithful friends. And we see that even though David's been betrayed by so many, he hasn't been betrayed by over 600 faithful friends that remained faithful to him and that were with him. And I love what we read here, the sentiment that we see expressed by Ittai the Gittite. Um, we were introduced to him in verse 19. It says, Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why are you also going with us? I hear that he comes down, he basically goes, look, dude, you just got here, and, and my future's uncertain, and, and this is, you know, really a lot to ask of you, man, why don't you stick around, just stay behind in Jerusalem? Well, Ittai responds in verse 21, he answered the king, and he said, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. Just such an incredible expression of friendship. He's like, look, I don't care where you go. I don't care if it costs me my life. I'm with you. And, and it's just this incredible picture of a faithful friend. The great theologians John Lennon and Paul McCartney said, I get by with a little help from my friends. And that's a true statement, but the trick is knowing who's a real friend. Who's a real friend? How many of you have had a friend that betrayed you, stabbed you in the back? You like, I, I remember, you know, one of those little 
posts that you see on Facebook with a little greeting card and the, the person, that's, their face is there in the little quote and the person says, are you looking for your knife? Well, the last place I saw it was in my back, you know. And, and we've, we've all experienced, sadly, people that we thought we trusted that stabbed us in the back. So, the, so the, 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 the question is, the trick is knowing, hey, look, who's a real friend? Who, who are our real friends? I, I saw another post that said, make sure that the people in your boat are rowing and not drilling holes. I think that's good wisdom to live by, right? It's true. A true friend, it's been said, is the one that runs in when everybody else has run out. So the question for us today, really the question to take a walk with and, and really answer is, how do you find a faithful friend? How do you find a faithful friend? I was at a pastor's conference many years ago and they were talking about uh, products versus projects. And they were saying when you hire people, when you hire employees, uh, some people are products. You buy a product, you take it home, you plug it in, it works. Other people are projects, and there's some assembly required. And you know, with true friendships, to ask the question, how do I find a faithful friend? I'll tell you that they are almost exclusively, almost never, as a matter of fact, I'll go so far as to say never products. A true friend is not, is not someone you just find and plug in. They're all projects. They're all a work. I'll say it a different way. True friendships aren't found, they're fostered. That's, that's, that's the catch. That's the thing that we see. This is the answer to the question, how do you find a faithful friend? They're not found, they're fostered. They're a project. They're, they, they, they work. There's assembly required. Proverbs 18.23 tells us, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. And the idea here is that you have to invest in the friendship. You have to give to the friendship. You have to sacrifice for the friendship. Now, some of y'all, you know what it is to have a friend who doesn't do those things. They have a street named after them. It's called One Way. And we, we know what it is. We have, some of us, those people that, you know, we call friends, but really, it's One Way. And, and the one way is, you know, it's all about them. They just suck you dry, you know. And, and it's just constant. It's all the time. It's all about me. And, you know, the moment, you know, it turns to you or your need, they're gone. It's like, where did they go? They're not around. Why? Because it's always all about them. But, listen, friendship is a two-way street. Absolutely, it's a two-way street. Paul said this to the Galatians in Galatians 6.2. He said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The Bible is filled with these one another statements. I think it's a great homework assignment just to consider this week. To go through your Bible and look at all of the areas where the Bible talks about one another. You know, the, the Bible says we are members of one another. That we're to receive one another, that we're to be like-minded with one another, that we're to greet one another, that we're to serve one another. The Bible says that we're to love one another, we're to have peace with one another, be kindly affectionate towards one another, encourage one another, have the same mind as one another. The Bible says that we're willing, we need to be willing to admonish 
one another, to forgive one another, to comfort one another, edify one another, exhort one another, consider one another. The Bible says a lot about one another. Jesus was asked, what's the most important command in the Bible? He says, you're supposed to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, now the second, I'll give you a freebie, is like it. Jesus said, you must love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, hinge all the law and the prophets. Hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, all 66 books of our Bible are, are founded, foundational upon loving God and loving others. The Ten Commandments, all oriented towards loving God and loving others. And so over and over and over again, we, we see the, the, this, this command, this exhortation, that we're to love one another and be, be encouraging one another. Bible says we're not to forsake one another. We're not to grumble against one another. Bible says we're not to speak evil of one another. Bible says we're not to lie to one another. Bible says we're to confess our sins to one another. That we're to pray for one another, have compassion for one another, be hospitable to one another, submit to one another, minister to one another. I could go on and on. There's one another statements in the Bible all over the place. You think this is important to God? Yeah. It's critically important to God. We need one another. You know, years ago, Brennan and I, when we, when we first got saved, we were going to a church in, here in Temecula. We lived in Menifee. We were going to church here in Temecula. For us, in that season of life, it was difficult because, you know, we had three small kids, um, and, and getting here to Temecula was a chore. I worked 72-hour shifts at the fire department. I was frequently gone longer than that. I worked out in Coachella Valley, so, I mean, I'm you know, just out there. And so getting to church, getting in fellowship, and having the one another aspect of church, it, it, was, it was tough. And we got a taste for the first time of what it really meant to be in Christian fellowship. You know, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And we tasted and, and partook of the goodness of God. And the goodness of God was manifested in his presence, in his word, but it was also manifested in his, among his people. And so for us, the, the, our, our difficulty, our problem was we lived, you know, our whole circle of influence, all of our friends and everything in Menifee at the time, we, we, there wasn't any godly friends we were hanging out with. They're all our beer drinking party and neighbors. Now, let me just be cl- real clear here. The Bible says we're supposed to minister the gospel to unbelievers, You know, the Bible talks about how we're to be salt and light to a lost and dying world. And we certainly do need to do that. But that's not what I'm talking about here because the problem is is we also need to be nurtured and fostered and and grown up and cared for by believers. And so what we experienced was we had this whole circle of influence of people that would lead us into sin and they would exhort us into our old lifestyle and we needed to come out from among them and be separate. Yes, we needed to minister to them, but you know, when, a, when you plant a brand new tree and it's just a little, you know, sapling, what, what's, what do you do universally when you plant a tree? Do you leave it by itself? No, you put a... a, a big pole buried and anchored in the ground that you strap it to and that pole's job is to keep that thing from getting blown over so we were in a place where we needed christian fellowship to keep us from being blown over we were desperate for it and we quickly realized that geographically it wasn't working for us that we needed a church in our in our town where we could be ministered to 
And so since there wasn't any good church at that point, we started a church in our living room. We're like, well, let's just start a Bible study. We'll just start a Bible study, see if God grows it into a church. I mean, there's four of us there. And, and it, you know, we had no business starting a church. If you would have told me Habunkus was a book in the Bible, I'd be like, is that Old Testament or New Testament? I mean, I've been looking, you know. But I was desperate, so we started a church. And what happened? Well, when I, that was in 1992. In 2007, when I left to plant this church, God gave us 6,000 Christians in fellowship that we could just be ministered to by and, and nurtured by and grow up with and so on. What we didn't realize at the time, our desperate need was this. The Bible teaches that, that one of the first four or one of the four foundational pillars of the church that, that Jesus Christ established in the book of Acts is fellowship. Acts 2.42 says they continued, speaking of the disciples, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that's the teaching of the Bible, in fellowship, that's what we're going to talk about here, in the breaking of bread, that's the partaking of communion, as Jesus commanded, and in prayers. These were the four pillars that they founded the church upon. And so Brenda and I didn't realize it, but what we were starving for was one of these foundational things that we need as Christians, and that is fellowship. The word that's used there in Acts 2.42 for fellowship, it's, it's, it's the Greek word koinonia. And it, and it means intimacy. It means community. It means partnership. It means joint participation. And the Bible is filled with exhortations for you and I that we need to be people that are united together in relationship. This is why what we're doing here is so critically important. It's why we have to get together as Christians in weekly fellowship in church. We need to be able to do this. We live in an age where people go, well, I can listen to any teaching that I want to on, on you know, the internet. And quite frankly, I can listen to te- the best teachers in, in the world. So why do I want to come to the local church where, you know, maybe I have to sacrifice and not even listen to the teaching that's as good as that is available to me on, on the internet? Because you can't get fellowship on the internet. And Facebook doesn't count. You can't get the fellowship that you need on the internet. This is why Paul, and I, you know, he wrote to the Hebrews, and it's debated who wrote Hebrews. I do think it's the Apostle Paul. Here's what he said in Hebrews chapter 10. He said, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the matter of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. He says, look, don't you, you, we need to consider one another. We can't forsake the assembling of ourselves together in Christian community. We need this koinonia fellowship. Don't forsake it. And when he says consider there, it's a very important word. In the, in the original language, it means to fix your eyes upon. It means to closely examine. And that's why we need this fellowship is so that I can examine you and you can examine me. Now what happens when we do that is you don't always like it. Because the attitude is, why are you looking at me? Look at yourself, man. You know, back off, man. And so, because we want to do the Wizard of Oz thing. Pay, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, look at the, at the log in your own eye, man, before you go looking at the speck in mine. But notice Paul's attitude here. He says, why are you considering somebody? Why are you focusing on them? It's not to be the God squad in their life. God squad, you're in sin. You know, that's not why we're supposed to consider one another. Why? It's to, to, to stir up love and good works. It's to encourage one another towards godliness. 
And, and this is why then he adds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Because what happens is, you get Christians in Koinonia Fellowship, and somebody says, brother, man, you shouldn't be doing that. Come on, don't be doing that. You should be doing this. And what we do is we go, oh, I'm not going back to that church. Because they had the audacity to point out my sin. Well, yeah, if it's a loving church, they did. But they didn't do it to judge you. They did it to encourage you. And we need that. We're desperate for that. And that's what true friendship is built upon. That people would love us enough. The Bible says it's an enemy that multiplies kisses, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. And we need friends that'll tell us when our zipper's down, metaphorically speaking. And so, so, so this is, is what's going on here. So critically important. Because when we let each other in, and that's what we're talking about, is letting somebody in. You let somebody into your life, they let you into their life. This kind of fellowship, we bear one another's burdens. We fulfill the law of Christ by doing so, the Bible says. And it forms a bond. It forms a connection. It forms a true friendship. And so David showed himself first to be a true friend. In other words, listen, his friendship wasn't found, it was fostered. And he showed himself to be a true friend. He led his men. He fed them. He bled with them. And through it, they forged a friendship. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon wrote this. He said, two are better than one. For they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three or even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. And the inference there is that, listen, as strong as our relationship is and as strong as we can protect and grow and nurture one another, you add Jesus to the mix, that threefold cord, man, it is not quickly broken. That's the idea. And so we see faithful friends in David's life, but we also see fair weather friends. If you want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 16, we get it in verse 1. And we read, when David was a little past the top of the mountain, we're talking about the, the, the Mount of Olives there, he's, he's running for his life, Absalom has, has you know, um, betrayed him, he's perpetuated this coup, and so David is now running, he runs through the Kidron Valley, runs up the, 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 uh, the Mount of Olives, through the Garden of Gethsemane, same path that Jesus took the night that he was betrayed, and so he's now at the top of the mountain, of the Mount of Olives, and there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? And so Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit are for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And then the king said, and where is your master's son? Where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. He's basically, if you'll remember, uh, Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. 
And when the Jonathan and Dave, or when Jonathan and Saul were killed in battle, Mephibosheth was just a little boy, and, and his nurse who was caring for him, she saw what had gone down. Now, the, the custom in this day and age was when the king was killed, then the conqueror would come and kill his whole family. They didn't want any competition for the throne, so they killed all his heirs. So this gal, this, his nurse, knowing that they're going to come looking for Mephibosheth to, to kill him, or fearing that that's what's going to happen, wasn't going to happen because David was the one who was going to assume the throne and certainly he wasn't going to do it. But she feared that so she grabbed him and she began to run. If you remember back in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, we saw this. She fell down with the kid and when she fell down, he was injured. He became lame and never walked again. And then in chapter 9, what happened was that David remembered an oath that he had made to Jonathan that he was going to take care of him, that he was going to take care of all of his house. And so he's like, he started asking around. He's like, hey, is there any heirs of of Jonathan that are left. And, and Ziba says, oh yeah, there's this Mephibosheth guy. And he goes, go get him. And so then David took care of, of Mephibosheth and said, I'm going to give you all the stuff that belonged to your dad, all the stuff that belonged to your father's household, his lands, his property. I'm going to have Ziba take care of you. He's going to be your caretaker. And, and David set him up. He ate at David's table. I mean, he loved him like a son. And so what we're reading here is that Ziba is telling him, hey, Mephibosheth, he, he saw the writing on the, wall, on the wall. He smelled blood in the water. You're out. He thought, oh, now's my chance to get the throne. Total lie. He's lying to him here through his teeth. He's, this is not happening, but this is what he's saying. And verse 4 says, So the king said to Ziba, Here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth, he gave him lands and houses and properties and all that. He says, Everything I gave to him is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. And so again, what you need to know is Ziba's lying through his teeth. And he is just an opportunist here. He ascribes to the Ram Emanuel philosophy that no, never let a good crisis go to waste. And so he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and get, while well, getting's good for myself. And so here he's clearly discontent with his position of life. He's a caretaker of Mephibosheth, but he wants to steal from him. Proverbs 16.23 says this, A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. It's exactly what we see happening here. David sadly plays right into his hand. He's acting on the only information that's available to him. He believes Ziba's lie. And so David says, fine, all that, that belonged to Mephibosheth, it's all yours now, Ziba. You, you, you can have it. Now, point of application for us right here, and this is an important one. Be very careful about the decisions you make when you're going through a crisis. When you're going through a time of crisis, you have to be very careful about the decisions that you make. Because, listen, not only do our friendships need to be fostered, but our friendships need to be protected and maintained. They need to be protected and maintained. See, oftentimes what happens when we're going through a stressful time we, we can lose sight of reality. We're so willing to believe the worst about someone and to forget what their character has been, to forget what their life has been. And we can understand that. Listen, David is going through an incredible season of betrayal. He is. We get it. it it's, you know, Absalom has betrayed him. Ahithophel has betrayed him. Many of his people have betrayed him. So when Ziba comes and says, yeah, Mephibosheth has betrayed you, he's like... I call that Tuesday these days. Like, join the club. 
You know, of course he betrayed me. Everybody else is betrayed. He's so willing to swallow it and believe it. Proverbs 18, 13 says, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. And this is what's going on here with David. He answers a matter before he hears it. We understand why. Because so many people have betrayed him. He's like, well, of course he did. Everybody else stabbed me in the back. There's 14 knives already there. So what's, what's the 15th one that, you know, this, this guy has done? So it's so easy for him now to believe that Mephibosheth has done this. Now, we experience this dynamic in our lives. I see it a lot in counseling. Where people will come in and they, they, they have a history. Somewhere in their past, they have been wounded. A father or a family member, a spouse or someone has betrayed them. And what happens is they'll project that. They'll bring that, they'll bring that baggage into their, their present relationship or into their present crisis. And what they do is they project onto the people. It's not what you deserve. It's not what your character deserves, but it's been what their experience is. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's just something you need to take a walk with that you, that you do that. But listen, this is what David is doing here. Because of his experience and because of the baggage that he's got, he's so willing to believe Ziba's lie and to completely trash this relationship. But listen, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And so this is, this is what's indicated here. Sadly, it's not what's happening. Well, the third thing I want you to take, take note of not, isn't just the faithful friends that David had or the fair weather friends that David had. I want you to take a look now at the foes that David has and how those factored into the situation, the management of the situation, and how God will use those for our good, if we'll let him. And so we pick it up in verse 5 of chapter 16. It says, Now when King David came to Behurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. Some of you guys work, some of you guys work with a guy like Shimei. He comes out, he's just you know cursing like a sailor. And he threw, verse 6, stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. He's talking to David. He doesn't like David. It's all coming out. He's like, you're bloodthirsty, you're a rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And in other words, he's basically, he's saying that David stole it and he was there illegitimately and it wasn't really his. And he's like, you're, you stole that guy's throne and God's brought all this on you because you're such a nasty, not, not nice guy kind of thing. And he says, um, he's brought the blood of the house of Saul upon you in whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. These are all lies. This is not true, but this is what he's saying. And then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. Right, and, and you know, Abishai is a bad dude. He totally is capable of doing this, and he's like, please, let me put this guy out of my misery. He's just, see, he needs to die. Please let me do it. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? 
and so let him curse because the Lord has and, and so let him curse because the Lord has said to him curse David who then shall say why have you done so we'll come back to that but listen right now what you got to see is that he's come into Bahurim this is where David has come this region and what is this region well this is where the tribe of Benjamin hangs out this is their neighborhood and Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. So these are Saul's peeps, you know. And as they're coming into there, this is where all the pro-Saul forces are. And they're still strong in this area. And among them is this cat Shimei. And, and basically, Shimei is a distant relative of King Saul. And clearly, he resents David for replacing the dynasty of Saul. And so he's cursing David. Well, what you got to know is he's been cursing David for a long time. But now he's just as free to do it openly. It's like the video you saw in, in Iraq when the U.S. forces overtook Iraq and you saw all of the Iraqis coming out and they tore down that statue of Saddam Hussein and they're hitting it with their shoes. This is their, they, this wasn't just mer- born that instant in their heart. They hated Saddam Hussein, but they weren't free to, to rebel against him until the U.S. forces deposed him. Well, this is the same dynamic here. David has been deposed. And so now Shimei, who hates David and has hated David, he's giving vent to this. And it tells us there in verse 7 and in a couple other places that he's cursing, that he cursed David. And that word in the, the Hebrew, the cursed, it's in the intensive active stem. And so what it means is that he's intensely and he's belligerently yelling at the top of his voice. Is a very extreme outrage and hatred that he has for David. But understand, listen, again, all of these accusations, they're all lies. David was not bloodthirsty. He didn't steal the kingdom. In fact, if anything, he showed tremendous restraint for Saul and the kingdom of Saul. But haters are going to hate, right? And so what's happening here is that, once again, we learn a very important lesson from David. And here's the lesson He takes it. He takes it. It says there in verse 10, Hey, Zariah, what have I got to do with you? The attitude there, by the way, on the surface of that, it seems like, wait a minute, here's a guy, David, who tells you, I'm going to go with you. I don't care what my future is. We're with you. And now somebody curses you, and I want to kill him. Can I kill him for you? And for you to say, what have I got to do with you? Oh, that's a fine thank you for me being loyal and loyal to you. It's not like that. What he, what he means, what David means when he says, what have I to do with you? It's the exact same kind of scenario as when Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going to go and be crucified and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And, and, you know, because Peter had a different idea of what the Messiah should do and how he should deliver the nation of Israel and so on. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but you're mindful of the things of men. And that's the exact attitude here when David says, what have I got to do with you? He's saying, I don't have anything to do with that kind of mindset. I don't have anything to do with that kind of heart. That's that's not where I'm coming from at all. And, And he says, so let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai, verse 11, and all his servants, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite, look, if my own son wants to kill me, how much more should this guy, this Benjamite, this, this descendant of Saul want to kill me? Let him alone 
and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be, verse 12, that the Lord will look upon my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. So what's happening here is that, you know, this guy is cursing and and they're all lies, but David takes it. And as David takes this, here again, he's a picture of Jesus Christ, who also took the, the harsh cursing and the rebuke. We read in Isaiah 53 that he, Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. And so he, Jesus, opened not his mouth. David doesn't open his mouth here. He shows incredible restraint. And listen, his restraint is even more remarkable when you consider the words of Abishai in verse 9. Notice there in verse 9, what's Abishai say? He says, please let me go over and take off his head. And when he says this in the Hebrew, you need to understand it's written in what's called the cohortative mode. And, and this is, it expresses immense intensity. It's a written way to express immense intensity. We, we have no equivalent like it in the English language. The closest we could come is a, a bunch of exclamation points. Or maybe an emoji with a bomb and a knife and a hangman's noose, you know. And, and so this is written in the cohortative mode. In other words, this guy is begging David to kill. He's saying, let me just kill him, please. Let me take this guy's head off. Now, I want you to put yourself in David's shoes right now. If you had the power to completely destroy your enemy, you had an Abishai at your, at your fingertips. I saw a video one time of a commuter. It wasn't true, it was fictional, but there, there was a commuter and they outfitted his car with missiles and a machine gun. You know, you're driving down the 91 freeway. You're like, you need to die. <laughs> you know, and it's, Matt, now you think, oh, I, I would never do that. Well, we do have missile systems. It's called Facebook. It's called Twitter, right? It, it's called Yelp. You know, you got missile systems that are available to you. Now, if you had the opportunity to wipe out your enemy, would you take it? <laughs> Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll pick it up in verse 10. Paul's writing to the Ephesians, he says this in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, you think your neighbor Bob is the problem. Your neighbor Bob is not the problem. Satan is the problem. 
See, we live in a fallen world. We are just products of the environment that we're in. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. And your neighbor Bob, your neighbor George, your neighbor Pete, whatever, he, whatever his name is, whatever issue you got with him, your sister, your brother, whoever it is, they're not the problem. I know the problem is wearing their skin and talking in their voice, but they're not the problem. Satan's the problem. Sin is the problem. And so he, he says, look, we, that's not your wrestle. You're not wrestling against, uh, against Karen, against Pete, against Bob, against Henry. No, you're wrestling against principalities and powers. Therefore, he says in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all, to stand. So stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and above all, verse 16, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. See, here's the deal. When we're down and out, the enemy piles on. You ladies, you're going through the... the um, not your average Joe study. You're looking at Job, one of the characters. And so here's a guy. God goes to Satan. He's like, hey, if you, you check out my servant Job. He's pretty cool. He's, he, he, he walks with me. He's a righteous guy. And, and, and Satan's like, well, yeah, you got a hedge of protection around him. That's where we get that statement, by the way. People are like, what's it mean, hedge of protection? We get it from Job. He's like, you got a hedge of protection around him. You, you, you protected him. So take that away. Let me get at him. Let me just mess with him. And then he'll curse you to your face. God's like, fine, go ahead. Test him. See, and what happens with you and me is that, well, the enemy, he, he, he messes with us and he wants to find us, he wants to get us in a place where the armor is off. And so, and it's not like, it's not like the enemy says, hey, I'm gonna attack Ted. And then Ted goes, wait, 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 wait. Let me get my armor on. And he, all right, fine, I'll fight fair, go ahead. And no, he's waiting for me not to have my armor on. He's like, hey, he's, his armor's not on. Come on, guys, let's go, let's get him. And then it's like, ah, I don't have the shield of faith. And that's what he's looking for. Because he wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy. This is what he's looking for. This is what he wants to do. Look, if we're not in the word, if we're not seeking to walk in righteousness, if we're not putting our feet, you know, with the gospel of peace, and we don't have the shield of faith, he's not going to wait. He's not going to let you catch your breath. He's looking for that opportunity. So back in chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, for David here, he's in this place, and for him to say in verse 10, what have I to do with you, sons of Zariah? What's he saying? He's saying, look, I'm in the spirit, I'm not in the flesh. I spent time away from God. I spent time sinning against God. I've, I'm not there anymore. I've, 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 I've asked God for forgiveness. I've asked God to restore me. I'm back in fellowship with God. <coughs> and I'm not going to be in that place to where the enemy now is going to find me without my armor on. I don't have nothing. I'm not fighting that way. So, so, so I'm not going to go and I'm not going to attack this guy. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, if you can revenge yourself, don't. If you could do it as easily as open your hand, keep it shut. 
If one bitter word could end the argument, ask for grace to spare that one bitter word. You want to tell me that's a work of the Spirit. That is not a work of the flesh. Because if I got that one bitter word, you're getting it. It's like, you know, you just you, you just want you're like, well, how about this? And you just say it. You didn't, this, that'll shut them up, you know. Well, why, so why would Spurgeon say, why would David make the decision to say, you know what, I'm a, no, you're not going to kill him. Just let him talk. Let him talk. I'll just turn him over to the Lord. God might have something to say to me through him. Why would he say that? Well, for starters, it's biblical. Romans 12, 19 says this, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, after first service, I had uh, Justin Alfred, who who calls our church home, uh, he came up to me after first service to share with me. Many of you guys, you know Justin, his wife Janie teaches our women's ministry and all. Um, Justin's daughter, Ashley, and my daughter, Caitlin, um, grew up together. They were best friends. And uh, they used to play basketball together. Well, in 2006, Ashley was murdered. And um, she was murdered by her boyfriend. And um, Justin wanted to kill him, which, as, as fathers, we get it. And God spoke to him, and he, he shared with me today. He's told me the story before. He just reminded me of it this morning. He said, you know, I was going to kill him. He said, and God spoke to me just as clear as I'm speaking to you right now. And God said, listen. He said, and he spoke to him from Romans 12, 19. Don't avenge yourselves. Rather give place to wrath. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He said, here's what God told me, Ted. And God said to him, My grace, my love, and my mercy is perfect, it's pure, it's holy, and it's complete. And he said, so also is my wrath and my vengeance. My wrath and my vengeance is perfect, it's pure, it's holy, and it's complete. But your, Justin, your your wrath is imperfect. It's impure, it's unholy, and it's incomplete. And he said to him, you turn that kid over to me, and he will either repent and receive my grace and my mercy, in which case he will receive perfect, pure, holy, and complete forgiveness. Or he will not, and he will harden his heart, and he'll stay in rebellion and unforgiveness. And in that place, in my wrath and my vengeance upon him, it will be perfect, pure, holy, and complete. And Justin said it set him free. And we need to be that place to where we say, you know what, I'm not going to avenge myself. I'm going to turn myself over to the one who judges righteously. And I would just ask you today to consider who is the person that that you would go to jail to to avenge yourself against and maybe, you know, struggle with or whatever it is and maybe you take a walk with and maybe God already speaking to you and he's got your he's got your number you're like that that's it that's what I needed to hear today God promises to use our trials for good you know Romans 8:28 we know that all things work together for good to those who love God those are the called according to his purpose 
We see the principle applied in Scripture. You know the story, Joseph, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. Years later, they're there and they're worried he's going to do something to them. What's he say to them? He says, look, as for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Proverbs chapter 3 says this. It says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. That's exactly what's going on here. Listen, David says to Zariah, Look, I, I, don't, have, I don't have any part of the violence and the taking vengeance. I'm not going to have any part with you guys there. He says, the Lord has said to him, curse David, who shall then say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life, how much more may this Benjamite, let him alone, let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. Listen, he says, it may be that the Lord will look upon my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. And so this continues on and on and on. And what I want you to see is that Shimei was wrong about a lot of things, okay? He, David wasn't bloodthirsty, David didn't bring Saul to ruin. David had stolen the throne. And it would have been so easy for David to say, I'm being wrongfully accused. <coughs> All of this is wrong. To fight against, to tell Abishai, yeah, take off his head because he deserves it, that punk. Doesn't do any of that because why? Because Shimei is right about something. God brought it upon David. That much is true. Not for the reasons that Shimei thought, but God allowed it. Which is why David let Shimei speak. Because he knew that God's hand was on the future as well as the present. And so, hey, look, if I do what's right in the present, God will take care of the future. That's the idea here. And listen, what was right in the present is to hear what God might have to say to him through Shimei. Look, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Okay? And so we need to turn our, our enemies into coaches. We, we need to, to, to turn our critics into coaches and go, okay, you know what? The guy's going to say something. I'm going to let him talk. I'm going to listen to what he has to say. And I'm going to take a prayerful walk with it because you know what? God might have something to say to me through what he's saying. Even if 99% of what he's saying is complete horse manure, there might be that 1% that I need to hear. And you know what? God's allowed this, and so I need to let him go. Alan Redpath said, where God's will and yours coincide, there is strength. Where they differ, there's weakness. In the lives of David and his friends, there, was, there is a unified surrender to the will of the king. And listen, we close on this. Look at verse 14. I want you to see the result. It says, now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, and so they refreshed themselves there. Can I just point out to you where they refreshed themselves? There. Where's there? Well, there, Shimei's been, been ha- hounding them, throwing rocks and stones. Doesn't say anything that he's gone. He hasn't gone anywhere. Shimei's still there. 
And that's there. That's where they refresh themselves. How on earth? Because we so often, we go through it today. Maybe you're going through it and you say, I need some refreshing. I got some foes in my life. Where do I get, where do I go? Where do I run to? Where do I hide? Where do I get some relief? I get some relief. I need some relief here for crying out loud. There's an old story about a guy coon hunting and he, coon, he, he trees the coon and, and, and the, the, the dogs are all there and finally he decides he's going to climb up in the tree to go after the coon and his brother's down below and he hears this, this whole hold on you know, fight that's going on. The coon is tearing his brother apart up in the tree and his brother shouts to him and says, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. He says, I can't shoot him. If I shoot up in there, I might hit you. And he says, well, shoot up here amongst us because one of us has got to get some relief right now. And maybe you're in a place today where you go, I just need some relief. The relief that David found was in the place where he surrendered to the Lord. That's it. That's where he found rest. That's where he found release, relief. That's where he found refreshing. Was to say, you know what, God? You're God. You know that most of what this guy is saying is complete horse manure. But I'm going to let him speak, and I'm going to listen. If there's anything in that for me that I need to take, and I need to take a walk with, I need to ask forgiveness for, I need to grow in, I'm going to do that. The rest of it, I'm going to turn over to you. Because, God, you, you can take this guy. And, and if you want to take him down, then that's you. And that's a place of rest, and it's a place of relief. And it's a place, as we go into prayer now, I invite you to come into.